Howdy, 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 everybody. Before we jump into episode 35 here with Rob Stone, uh, we have our weekly question of the week for Fishhead Diagnostics, our sponsor. And to, uh, not today, but this week, our question is, uh, what are common uh, symptoms of nidovirus? Uh, you know, is there anything that sticks out in particular? Any red flags that would be obvious signs of a of nido infection and we have <clears throat> the clinical signs can well this is from dr susan and company uh the clinical signs can vary from mild and non-specific to severe respiratory signs or sudden death typically snakes will begin to have increased amounts of clear mucus in the mouth and nose and the gums may become reddened this can, can, can this can progress into wheezing, breathing with the mouth open, more rapid breathing or coughing. Other signs include a poor or non-existent appetite, weight loss, decreased activity level, dehydration, spending more time on the bottom of the cage if a purging snake. Uh, secondary bacterial infections may also play a role in the disease, so mouth rot could be evidence of an underlying nidovirus infection, although there are many other causes as well. So... Long story short, if you suspect there's a NIDO infection, hit up Fish Head Diagnostics, get a test, get your snake checked, and then you'll know. Don't just guess. You can take it to your vet. Your vet may not know about NIDO virus and what's going on with that. So definitely talk to Dr. Susan or Pia Bartolini. Uh, see what they have to say. Um, we appreciate them being a sponsor. And we are now going to get into episode 35 with Rob Stone. Enjoy. And please, everyone, make sure you subscribe via SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook at the Herpeticulture Podcast and Instagram at Herpeticulture Podcast. Thank you. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And this is Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelia, and you are listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. He kept some and had it happen. Because um, occasionally, yeah, it doesn't happen often, but they'll like flee from the egg. Mm-hmm. And you'll actually get some that die because they don't, like, they want to sit, but you kind of freak them out. Yeah. Um, so if you, like, cover them back with, like, a paper towel, um, mm-hmm. that can help. Yeah, I mean, Just they're, as, they're... A, as a thought, I know everyone likes to cut them and all, and it's, believe me, I've, <laughs> I've cut the shit out of all sorts of different eggs. <laughs> Mostly fine. Um, yeah. But with rhinos. Uh, I've seen it. I know Eric had it with carpets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he put the paper towel over it, and the rest of them were like, oh, okay, I'm cool. Yeah, they took their sweet time. Um, I ended up losing, of that handful, I think four of them. Like, I cut them, and then I'd, I'd like, touch them with the tip of the cuticle scissors, and they would respond, like their body would twitch. Uh, right. And they yeah. were alive. But then I came back the next morning and they were dead, so I'm, I'm assuming they just drowned in the albumin or or whatever. <clears throat> but so that sucked. But <clears throat> like I said, with the number I got, I'm not complaining. I knew I, I knew it right. was it was a very slim possibility that all 17 would be on the up and up and and make it. 
Yeah, man, I think it's still that's still a hundred percent success, you know. Definitely. For sure. But I've gotten a lot of range with the uh, with the babies. Like I had the first baby that came out was like six grams. Um, then I had some that were like seven, seven and a half. And then I had some eights and some uh, one or two that were like nine and a half. So the the sizes are kind of all over the board a little bit. But I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna throw were the eggs pretty consistent, or yeah. was there a range in size on the eggs? No, they were all pretty pretty much the same. I don't know. It was a it was a learning experience because this is my first time breeding chondros, so there's already stuff. Yeah. You know, next time that I'll be changing, and uh, I don't know. It was it worked. I mean, I have babies, so I did something right. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah, man. I wouldn't. Uh, you gotta look positive. <clears throat> think positive. You know. Definitely. Uh, let's see. And now, no matter what happens, you're a chondro breeder. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's not nothing. I keep messing with Jake, and I'm like, one day you'll breed some real Morelia. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, at least mine don't, you know, half my clutch doesn't die. So. Well, they can sometimes, you know, whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, I just, cool. I just like, like giving him a hard time. You know? He loves to give me a hard time about mine. I like to give him a hard time about his. But uh, No, I hear you. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm anxious to talk about some rhinos and some alterna and... Uh, Australia and all kinds of stuff. So we're uh, we're already recording, so we'll just jump into it. But welcome everybody. This is episode thirty-five of the uh, Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and usually I'm accompanied by Jacob Bratz of JLB Moralia, but he is sick tonight, so it's just me and our guest, Mr. Rob Stone of uh, Hello High Plains Herpeticulture. So what's up, man? How's it out there in the wilds of of Colorado? Uh, it's all right. Yesterday, yesterday, that's right. We had uh, our second quote bomb cyclone of the last month, which was interesting. What is that? Um, I guess it's it's so it's this process called bombogenesis, which is when the pressure drops more than twenty four millibars in a twenty four hour period. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's just like an insanely rapid low pressure front. Um, in both times associated with uh, blizzards, although this one was much less snow and uh, less wind, at least at my spot. But uh, I think folks out east and in Nebraska and Kansas and stuff probably uh, felt it pretty good. What does it, I mean, what does it do? Like, does it just cause a lot of snow and, like, storms, or does it just just get insanely cold? I think basically, I mean, for, for here, right, it was uh, certainly there was snow, and uh, early on, giant flake snow. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't wind up getting a huge total at my spot. It was, even if you went 15 miles east, it was like, they got three or four times as much snow as we did. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, high winds, you know, gusty 40, 50, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, basically if it happened in the summer, then you'd have tornadoes and stuff, I think. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, these aren't. These but I aren't... guess it usually happens over the ocean. Like it's some process that happens over the ocean huh. with regularity or whatever. But in a month ago, it was the first time in whatever length of time, and I think the pressure reading not not up here, but maybe a hundred miles south was like it hit record lows. You yeah. know that hadn't that were set in the fifties or something like that. 
Um, so, yeah, certainly you would think that would... <laughs> I think the reptiles noticed one way or another. <laughs> yeah, that, that like real winter weather isn't something we, we deal with here. We got... Yeah, right. Well, and I mean, what... Uh, I used to live in Louisiana, um, mm. and those winters to me are in some ways much more miserable because... You know, here at least, even if it's cold, like today it was, uh, I think in the 40s or something, but the, the big hot thing is right there. So, um, you know, I wear shorts, I was wearing shorts and sandals um, when I did that in Michigan, in the same sort of temperatures, people thought I was crazy until I said, oh yeah, well, I'm from Colorado and they should say no more, I understand, uh, that's just how you guys are, but... Um, <laughs> In Louisiana in January and February, man, it's miserable. Just like 40 degrees and raining and the hot thing is not close to you. Yeah. So I don't know if yours is like that or maybe not so bad. No, I mean, actually, this this winter that we had was, I mean, every winter here is pretty mild. It's rare that we get snow of any substantial amount. Um, And, I mean, it was like mid to upper 70s today and it's been raining a lot here so it's crazy humid and crazy hot <clears throat> right and uh I'd, I'd rather be cold than hot pretty much any day of the week yeah for sure i mean me too the funny thing is that a couple of days ago the day before we got that uh it was 85 in the afternoon mm-hmm. isn't that i'm glad it doesn't so just 80- do that here like it'll be 51 day and then the next day it's 86 and you don't know what clothes you're supposed to wear or it'll be cold in the morning and then it'll be blazing hot by noon right I always assume that was just a southern thing but it's nice to know it, it affects others elsewhere no and I, I think it's uh, it's one of those things that everyone everywhere says the weather is variable so mm-hmm. it's probably boring to some extent but I don't know I find it interesting and I certainly think it's relevant to um mm-hmm. Especially how we keep reptiles. Definitely. All right. So you have quite an extensive collection of stuff you keep and breed. Um, I guess we can jump Yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that's sort of true. I would say it's more true to say that I've kept at various times basically everything. Um, (laughs) Not a ton of venomous stuff, um, particularly as you can't, other than uh, heliodermis, you can't have venomous in Colorado. So... Uh, not a ton of venomous stuff, not really crocodilian stuff. Uh, I had some uh, little caiman for a brief period of time that was kind of fun, but uh, not necessarily turtles. But in terms of lizards and snakes, I, I think I've, I've had most of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have all that much right now. So what was it, like, what did you first, when did you first start keeping? Is, let's cover the, sort of the basics of how you got no <laughs> Right, start at the start. Yep. Um, yep. I think the, well, so my old man was very anti-snake and even anti-reptile, but he was pro-animal and pro-pet. So I remember being um, four or five, and we would often go, there was this pet store in Southern California that we Mm -hmm. would go to that was shaped like a giant barn, and at least in my memory of it, we were there kind of all the time. Mostly kind of pet mammal stuff, um, birds, there was one incident with a bird, uh, on a Saturday morning that uh, a Kanye of some kind that uh, was a little too noisy for the old man, so he put it in the car to <laughs> get some sleep or whatever, and then yeah. 
remembered about it five or six hours later, and by then it was uh, <laughs> it was much too late in a Southern California car. Um, so that uh, that was a thing that happened. Uh, we moved to Hungary when I was six and a half, seven. Oh, wow. I remember having little um, small turtles, you know, red ears, mm-hmm. white ears of some variety, probably red ears, something like that. Uh, having a whole handful of them because they certainly didn't have a four-inch rule. You, could, you know, it'd be like being here in the '60s, you know, something like that with a bunch of bunch of little turtles. So, um, so that was cool. Had to leave those there. Obviously, we weren't going to import, you know, four sliders or whatever to the U.S. So a friend of ours had taken them on. Um, I think my first, well. Yeah, so my first reptile pet was a, uh, well, I guess was a pet store, a mall pet store, Colombian, imported Colombian baby uh, with the hot rock and the astroturf. <laughs> of course, And a 20-gallon yeah, yeah. long, you know, oh, you can the, grow the it standard, up a bit in this thing. Yeah. Right, and with mites, you know, the whole deal. So just, just a, a mess, and it didn't last long, and it's one of those things that it's, in a certain way, that's, that's, Remarkable, but at the same time, everything about the situation is not what I would do if you said if you just handed me a baby, baby BCI uh, today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that went through relatively quickly, but that was initial exposure to sort of reptiles magazine and uh, the annual that they used to put out. I yeah. remember the first one I got was like the '98 annual, and just read that thing literally thousands of times, such that mm-hmm. it you know fell to dust. Um, I used to do that. I had I used to take them to to school with me every day. It would be like the same issue over and over again, and I would take it with me until like it, the whole the binding and the staples were gone and everything was just falling apart. Right. Like every yeah. No, day, same man. deal. Those things so I, I remember that uh, that one. I don't have that uh, <laughs> copy anymore, but I did repurchase that issue at mm-hmm. some point in the last ten years, kind of as a nostalgia deal. There's there's still some cool stuff, uh, cool pictures to look at, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just bought another issue from like 2005 because they had a Baird's Rat Snake article, and I used to have, I swear, like every issue of Reptiles from like 2000 to probably 2008 or nine. Uh huh. And they had a Baird's Rat Snake article. And I finally hunted it down, and like just looking through and looking at the ads. Right. And it wasn't even oh, from that long cool, ago. Man. Yeah, it wasn't even that. You know, it wasn't anything from you know the mid 90s or anything like that but still just to see like you know ads from shows that aren't even around anymore and just you know companies that aren't around anymore and especially with the older stuff you know you see the signal herp ads and sure it's 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 cool to see because i remember just flipping through them every day at school and not thinking anything of it and then i look back now and you know i kind of miss it Oh yeah, I mean, I, so I'm, you know, same boat. Um, I have, I, I have all the reptiles from more or less the start up through '05, something like mm-hmm. that. And I have the full set of the Vivarium magazines, you know, so from '88 to when it was bought by reptiles or whatever. So um, I'm totally with me. I love, love looking at that stuff, both in terms of uh, industry uh, history and my own history with it. Right? You know, I think yeah. that's a lot of cool stuff and I know on uh, whenever I guest on uh, or book folks for Eric and Owen my principal interest is kind of history or history of herpeticulture stuff mm-hmm. you know that's kind of my favorite thing and 
uh, I love talking to those guests and stuff. Did you see that new book that came out recently that talks about that? Like the yeah, I, I picked I, it up. Michael Berger's thing. Yeah, is it? I want to get that. Is it? Any, did you did you read through it yet? Yeah, I'm maybe two thirds of the way through. So it's it's interesting. It's different kind of than uh, Jenny Smith's book and the uh, what's the one uh, the Lizard King book. You know, it's different from yeah, those, which yeah. were written more in a narrative style. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit more sectioned out, right? And kind of on the back side of it, then it turns into like a handful, two or three to two, three, four pages on individual people. So yeah, it's super, super cool. It's a little bit less, uh, I mean, the Stolen World book, you know, I read in yeah. 18 hours. Cause I, I know those people is, I think, part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, super into it. I remember when that book had come out, my wife worked at a bookstore and it was like, hey, you got to get me the copy when it comes to the shop, not when, you know, you, that you can put it on sale on Tuesday or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole thing. And yeah, I literally read it essentially instantly. This is uh, more I've been picking and choosing based on the people that I really know yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, it is cool, and it's definitely uh, definitely a worthwhile thing. Mm-hmm. I need to get a copy of that, and I need to get Ari's book on Bo Ellen's. I'm, I'm I'm so slack on on keeping up with books and stuff. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I definitely want to pick up that that. The uh, burger one, because that one I saw that you know when they first started, he first donated one for Carpet Fest. Right, when he put it on Facebook and stuff. Yeah, and I got real excited because that kind of stuff I just find super interesting. Like I love the from the hobby aspect, like the the back history and sort of the guys that that made you know help make it what it is today, even if it was in a small, you know, a small scale. Oh, totally, <clears throat> totally. And I mean, the I really like that the effort is whether it's the show, whether it's Michael Berger's book. Uh, even, you know, Jenny Smith's book or Brian Christie, the Lizard King book, you know, yeah. any of those things, it's like, and even when I talk to people to, to talk to them about coming on Eric and Owen's show, it's like, if, I mean, we're all day to day, right? You know, any yeah, of us could be yeah. hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, and if, if you don't put in the time now, even if it seems like nothing, I mean, heck, you, I'm sure you've listened to the Rico show dozens of times. You know, yeah. it's probably not an overstatement, right. you know, and it's, that's really safe for the pamphlet that he put together. And I mean, uh, certainly I knew him. I got a funny story for you later about that. Um, but, um, you know, it's otherwise it just goes away. You know, you hear about it sort of mm-hmm. in anecdotes if you're exposed to people that are around that. But I mean, it always, you know, uh, in the same way, right? You know, the whole line about assholes. Well, I am one. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> judgy about stuff sometimes, and it's, um, you know, a situation where if you you're not exposed to it, then people say, "Oh, well, this has never been done," or they assume make assumptions about things. And often, there's just not. I, I sit there and I hear that, and it drives me bananas. And again, that's me being a jerk, but it drives me bananas that I'm like, if you're gonna tell the story, you gotta tell it right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love the enthusiasm, but it's got to be right. Right. You know? right. Um, and otherwise, it's just perpetually misunderstood, and uh, maybe that's just life. But to the extent that people have an opportunity, a vehicle to to get the truth out there, or get at least their version of the truth out there. Right. I mean, we all got to seize those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, with this, that was kind of my 
the whole point was, you know, I'm going to try and whatever information goes out, I'm going to try and make sure it's as factually accurate as possible. And, you know, obviously I'm not, we're not going to appeal to everybody and there's going to be people that are going to think we're full of shit and whatever. And so be it. I mean, you're not going <laughs> to, well, you're yeah. not going to make I mean, everybody that's, happy. That's so. just, you know, I think the, where at least, you know, um, my perspective would be when people go wrong is when they act like they know the story. You know, I think you guys do a great job. I love the enthusiasm that you guys have. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah, I was telling my wife earlier today, you know, I said, oh, that was a couple of younger guys. You know, and she said, what do you mean? We're, you know, we're not that old. And I was like, well, I think they're <laughs> in their, you know, mid or early to mid 20s, something like that. And I kind of, you know, that crazy as it was, that's, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 10 years ago or you know, 12 years ago or whatever, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I love that, and I think to the extent that it's just uh, that you guys are just saying, hey, this is my interpretation, it's my understanding. I love listening to that stuff, and mm-hmm. I know even going back to Reptile Radio days, they, the thought that Larry had was, oh, well, no one, you know, no one's going to want to listen to our gum flapping mm-hmm. uh, 10 years on, and I think in some ways that's completely the opposite of the truth right in some ways that's sort of the most fun if you're just casually listening um and then in, in light of everyone going crazy for banana ball pythons and hearing their 70 grand and whatever you wouldn't even if you weren't in the industry at that time that's stuff that you wouldn't even be aware of right yeah. you'd just be like what do you mean there are 200 dollars mm-hmm. or whatever i don't even know what they are but you know like the point being that without those things existing if you weren't around then it would just be, well, my only exposure to them is is where they are today. Man, it's funny you mentioned Reptile Radio too, because a couple weeks ago, I uh, I was on iTunes just looking through other reptile podcasts to see what else was on there that maybe I was missing, and their their all their stuff came up, <clears throat> and there was an episode they did with Ray Hunter. He does uh, he does a lot of venomous stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I'm sure you know of him or have heard of him or seen him or something. Uh, but they did a show with him, and this was like, I think 2006 or seven, and I like called in, and so I was like 16 or 15 at the time, and uh, I was I couldn't find like I don't know if they had two episodes with him, and I had called in on the first one, and the iTunes archive just didn't go back that far or what, but I was digging hard, man. I was like, I bet you 16 year old me is on here somewhere. Uh, calling in, <laughs> and I couldn't find it. Band. Well, I, I have possibly some bad news if it fell within a certain time frame. And this is why, you know, I always advise folks against kind of switching midstream, whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. if they're not 100% committed, is uh, there was a period of time where Larry was going to put the stuff on onto their forum, you know, and, and host it separately yeah. and this sort of thing. And so there is actually, you know, the it's just like Bob Dylan or whatever, the missing tapes. Um, there's a, a, a year or so of missing tapes on Reptile Radio oh. that Larry had taken off of Blog Talk, and now they're not available. So it, it must have Bob been. Bob Applegate's show is in there and all, all that stuff, yeah. um, and those are just gone. Yeah, it must have been. They must have had him on twice because I, I, I swear to God, I looked for this little clip of me calling in for like – an hour <laughs> on the same episode just going back and forth and like trying to fast forward and like real little tiny 10 second increments and uh-huh. i hunted it up and down in that episode and couldn't find it and then at the end of the episode they were like thanks for coming on again and so i was like oh there must have been the, that must have been the first episode that i came on or called in 
And uh, that one, I guess, is long gone. Because I searched Blog Talk 2, like, I looked on iTunes, I couldn't find it anywhere, so... I was a little bummed. Yeah. No, that that is a bummer, man. That that's really cool. I'm sure I heard it uh at the time. I don't I don't remember it now, but uh that's cool. I like that. Yeah, it was I at that time I was I had been I had talked to this was like during MySpace days. This is this is going back a minute. Uh <laughs> but I remember talking to Ray on MySpace because at the time I was doing, uh, I was in karate, and so I was really big on like martial arts and stuff. And he was like, "Yeah, man, we can do a, you know, a trade for, you can teach me how to use like nunchucks or something like that, and I can uh, <laughs> mentor you on like venomous." And I was like, "Cool, man!" And then like he was on Reptile Radio, and so I, uh, you know, I called in and talked to him on that, and it was just, it was just a hip young gunslinger, <clears throat> right? Back in the day. I'm 28, sure, so it's not that far, far, far back, but feels like a <laughs> long time ago. Well, you start your own podcast empire, so I mean, clearly it had some influence. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right, man. So, what was it like, Rhino, Rhino Rats? That's kind of that's that's sort of your jam. That's kind of what you're you're known for as being yeah, the, the Rhino well, guy. I mean, it's the only thing that kind of consistently through you know, hundreds of species and thousands of animals or whatever that, um, you know, for varying lengths of time and whatever and mm-hmm. in various contexts uh, that I've had for, I suppose, 17 or 18 years and I've continually had them uh, that whole time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of the only thing that fits that bill for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and I think... The least part of that was uh, when I, I'm just like anybody else. The first exposure to them that I really had was when Robin and Chad started putting yeah. out uh, the ads and the interviews and yep. all that stuff. So they moved down to uh, Denver from up in Boulder when I was uh, 12 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and initially to kind of a private spot, but then in... I think it'd be 98 or 99 that they had uh, opened up the shop, you know, when they had the retail store open yeah. and that was half the, uh, not half, but maybe a third, uh, a third of the total operation, right, right, was this retail store. And I was there from literally day one, from the, the day they opened that up. Mm-hmm. And within uh, a year or 18 months of that, I was working there, you know, in exchange for uh, credit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen a lot of stuff there, um, and certainly they had them. Um, they had uh, a couple. Uh, they had a group of ten or twelve of them initially that had all come from Klaus Schultz in Germany, mm-hmm. who was. I'm not sure whether he or um, Nikolai Orlov at Tula were the first to like which of the two was the first to breed them. Um, and I'm not sure whether Klaus's were related to those Tula critters or not. I know certainly Tula, I believe, got them first because they got them from Vietnam, uh, being another communist country. I think they were able, and especially then with the zoo connection, were able to uh, to go there and mm-hmm. check them out and, and get some of them in 94 or 95. And that was really, as far as I know, the first western exposure to those snakes in okay 
So they haven't been in the hobby all that long. years, at least. You know, something yeah. like that. They were described in the late 1800s and early 1890s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, late 1880s, early 1890s. Uh, and then they were described, again, you know, because, again, we our globalized world, right, it's sort of easy to picture uh, this happens and everyone is aware of it, whereas you see it with a lot of species descriptions from remote places in mm-hmm. the 1800s where two years later someone else describes it as something completely different, genuinely thinking it's, <laughs> it's novel, yeah. it's not a rip-off, it's... Right. Hey man, you know I'm in Germany. You're in the UK. I got them from this guy who went to Northern Papua, you know, and this someone else got Southern condros, you mm-hmm. know, whatever it might be. And you both write these descriptions, and it turns out, at least in that case, that they are different critters or whatever. But um, the same thing happened with rhinos. So that a in China, a Chinese um, university wrote them up as something entirely new and different. 35 or 40 years later, mm-hmm. um, maybe even on the, the far extent of that. I think 1931 was when that second one was. Um, so, I mean, oh, even 40 years later, it's, oh, we found this new thing. Well, no, not really. Not quite. Uh, you were beaten to the punch a little bit. But um, that uh, those two list snakes, I think, were the first ones out in a very long time, and that was 94 and 95. Um, and then Klaus spread some in 97 or 98 for the first time and I think all of those uh, so then he sent at least some portion of those to Cameron and Robin and Chad bought all those snakes so those were the foundation of their group Mm -hmm. and then they started having some issues with them by the time sort of I was there so we're talking early 2000s 2002 or before Um, and they uh, we can get into that uh, that issue that they were seeing a little bit later on if you want to. But yeah, um, long story short, they weren't having luck with them. They bred them, I think, once, um, possibly. And, but they're like, hey, we just want to get rid of these whole things, and this whole group. And I said, sure, man, uh, we'll make that work. And so uh, my buddy Tom Weaver at Denver Zoo and I together bought all of those uh, bought all the the remaining group, which was eight or ten snakes mm-hmm. at that time, um, and I had the last two of those, the, the last one of those until uh, 2017. That was that original blue female that I had. Um, oh, wow. So I mean, there's there's really she, not any like there's 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 not much. Uh, of a change up as far as the bloodlines here in the states is there? Well, so that, that's an interesting bit. So um, there were the Tula snakes, and then there were the Klaus stuff. And again, I'm not. I think Klaus had wild stuff, so I think there was some differentiation there. And then in 2005, uh, Cameron kind of China opened up, mm-hmm. and Cameron got in some wild ones, and. I think it was he got six and then maybe three more like six weeks or two months later and I bought all of those um, <laughs> just because I mean it was like literally at that point there hadn't been wild rhinos in the US in living memory so yeah. to speak you know yeah. if if literally ever um, which is a little bit weird because you usually think well it'd be something from the 30s or the 40s mm-hmm. or whatever Um 
but I've never seen a photo of that or an account of that or anything. Uh, so it's entirely possible that those were legitimately the first wild-caught rhinos in the U.S. Uh, and they do occur. So they occur in northern Vietnam and far southwest, southeastern China. It's not entirely certain in that um, Hainan Island, I believe. Um, so anyway, 2005 were the first wild rhinos. I bought all those. They, uh, <laughs> at least once their color changed, um, you can visually sex them about 90% accuracy. Yeah. Um, just based on their colors, what they look like. Okay. Um, and so when Cameron got that second batch, maybe he got, maybe I had it reversed. He got three or four and then he got six more. Um, because so the first time I just bought all of them and the second time I, uh, I said, um, well, he, and he had taken off, so I was looking at him, and then, uh, he had to go run an errand or something, so I'm standing there with Ryan, and I was like, yeah, I just want these two, man. Um, and, uh, and then I let, you know, I paid for him and left, and Cameron came back to the house, and he's like, you know, get your butt back here. <laughs> what are you doing to me? And I was like, hey, man, I didn't, I didn't lay a finger on those. I just, you know, just looking at them, I, I do what I want, and he said, you know, screw you, you're going to, you know, buy the rest of them. Um, so, so that was pretty funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I got all those and I made it my effort to mix that stuff, uh, all together. You know, I've never seen any negative issues in terms of inbreeding associated with them, but mm -hmm. it was always something that I thought could potentially be an issue. Um, yeah. just considering how tight it was to start. Um, and other species, even of Asian rat snakes, I've seen stuff that uh, suggests that maybe that's an issue. Um, I mean, we get into this all the time when we talk about insular species and things, is that if it's a species that comes from a really restricted range, um, like an island or something mm -hmm. like that, all the deleterious genes have probably been picked right. out. Because the genetics things, already bottleneck to begin with. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a, they're coming from a tight pool, and so anything bad has popped up, and then it's, you know, that hasn't survived to pass along. So you're you're mm -hmm. probably dealing with really good, uh, really, only really good genes absent, uh, you know, new mutations that, yeah. that crop up. But um, with something that has a, a decent range, that's probably not nearly as, you know, nearly as much the case and so if you if you take a species like that and then you start from a super tight pool um i can certainly it's easy to imagine problems and there have been examples of problems so right. uh, i always thought it was a good idea to mix in other stuff i still have that um descendants of that stuff i have um f1 stuff i have wild caught stuff uh, and then i have descendants of that uh, either outcross stuff or even original line stuff mm -hmm. um, that I'm working with today. And I'm assuming if you did that then there's there's no real major difference between the Chinese and the Vietnamese variety. I haven't seen any whatsoever. I mean I think the thing you see in wild caught stuff but I mean I see this in the if you look at Klaus's pictures of those original snakes that he had and it's why I'm pretty confident they were wild you see a lot um, they tend to be much just greener snakes, less patterned snakes. Yeah. Um, the wild caught stuff generally. Um, and I'm not totally sure why that is, whether it's a UV thing or it's mm -hmm. a, a weight thing or, or what. Um, but most wild ones, they look pretty solid green as opposed to getting the black tipping or the white tipping on those scales. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it, it really makes them pop. So if you look at something and it's really high pattern, you know, that that's probably uh, multi-generation captive bred, probably. Gotcha. So what what was it about them that, that initially drew you to them, though? Like, what was it about, like, you saw that species and what made you say, like, those are going to be, those are what I want to do. Like, those are what I want to pursue. You know, I, I don't really know. I mean, Klaus always said, well, it's the last unicorn, right? Uh, and I think there's some some truth to that. They are, they're just, they're different. Um, at this point, in terms of still doing them and stuff, I think some of it's familiarity, and the other part is mm-hmm. just that they've proven to be exceptional snakes. In terms of, you know, you can do a whole host of different things. You can make all sorts of mistakes. They're not chondros. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're very forgiving. Yeah. Um, and then you just kind of, um, you know, the, I think there's definitely something that if you uh, you keep, they'll grow on you um, for sure. Just because they're they're kind of fun, you know. They're mm-hmm. they don't typically bite. I mean, they when they're eating, they're very seasonal feeders. When they are eating, uh, yeah, probably don't put your hand in there. Uh, but if you hook them out, then uh, they're not going to bite you, you know, mm-hmm. at all. None. Um, they don't musk. Uh, maybe a baby, a, a little hatchling will, but not noticeable. Uh, certainly not compared to a lot of other things that I like. Uh, I wouldn't put them in that box. Um, so, and they're great. Uh, they're great display snakes. You know, they're out. They're diurnal yeah, snakes. Yeah, that's what that, Mark Hager, he got some, and he says his are always out and about. Like, he always sees his. They're never tucked in a corner somewhere where you, you know, you never see him. He says his are always out. He uh, offered his, like, some branches and stuff to climb on. He says they're always doing their thing in those, and he just, he can't, yeah, I mean, he can't the, say enough good things about thing, them. That's the thing, man. Excuse me. You can keep them in tubs. You can keep them in a 28-quart tub. You can keep them in a the long vision hatchling tub so that, you know, you can even breed them in there. They just have to both turn left simultaneously, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh at the same time, you could keep them in two-foot cubes. You could keep them in a six-foot cube. You could do all sorts mm-hmm. of crazy stuff, and you'd still see them, you know, and they'll still do well. Maybe not a hatchling in that size, but, yeah. um, you know, an adult, you're going to see it. And during during the day, um, it's going to be out and cruising around, not even just out and sitting, but out and doing its thing. Um, so that that's part of it, too, right, is that they're just, they're nails, man, once... Uh, once they're, you know, have size and are feeding, you can do a whole host of different things, uh, and more so than almost anything else I can think of, they'll still they'll still do okay with it. So uh, I think that's part of it too, for sure. Yeah, because the one thing that I've heard over the years continuously is that the babies can be an absolute nightmare to get get off the ground. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, well, they, they pretty clearly eat. Uh, fish and or tadpoles you know when they're born in the wild um once they start to change color usually about eight to twelve months um then they uh you know then they're good to go because in in the wild at once they have size they do eat rodents um so once they'll reach a size where they say oh yeah that's food and then they're gangbusters for it and as i say when it's the feeding time of year man they watch your fingers Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure I've you know had them chew it down to the base of my hand and then it's like okay now what are we going to do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know so what um, do you I mean 
what do you do with your babies? Like, do I mean, do you just offer them? Because I've seen people give them goldfish, like they're a garter snake. I don't, I don't know I've done all the different. I mean, that's the thing at this point. You know, is I've done all the different things, uh, both in terms of babies and adults. <laughs> You'd say, oh, well, what about this? Yeah, I, I've tried it. At this point, I've become. You know, I, I think we as reptile keepers generally have uh, we try and put our push our will onto the critters more than we should. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, "Oh no!" And and I think not to say that feeder fish are the <laughs> the greatest thing in the world, right. but I do think we fear stuff more than we should. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like we have a, a greater fear of. Um, different things other than rodents um and probably to some extent that's misplaced right there i do understand that being uh ectothermic right uh, if you're feeding anoles to maybe gray bands or, mm-hmm. or whatever that's less ideal than feeding even a scented uh scented pink or whatever but i mean heck man people get gnarly rodents <laughs> I, I know people that do yeah. you know they get gnarly rodents that are clearly have parasites and things and that's I understand that the de- degree of transference uh between an ectotherm and an ectotherm and, and you know an endotherm and an ectotherm is gonna be is gonna be different. Mm-hmm. Um that's certainly true. But I think a lot of that yeah, honestly is people t- trying to tell the snakes what to do and a lot of sort of worry more worry than uh and it's easier to say, right? It's one of those things that you can uh you tell people and it's like, oh, that's the the acceptable answer. You know, that's the answer everyone yeah. expects, and they, they kind of say, okay, yeah, that, you know, oh, he's on our team. The mob um, agrees, so right? I, yeah, mob mob rules. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, and heck, man, any of those baby chondros don't eat, toss in a house gecko. You know, toss in a house gecko. What I'd rather have a house gecko, you know, one that ate a house gecko than one that was dead than a freezer pet. Yeah. To me, that's an like it's not even a choice but uh, most people probably don't agree mm-hmm. with me on that point but yeah and i mean for for stuff that won't eat you know be it a chondro be it a gray band be it you know a rhino or anything like that like to me it's just at some point it has to be about just getting food in the animal like yeah it's probably gonna, totally. i'm probably gonna have to treat this at some point but it needs something in it. Like it needs some sort of intake. <laughs> right. It, it, things that are alive need to eat. Something. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the thing I've seen, cause I, as I say, man, I've, uh, cheese fed pink heads. I've done, I've done that. That used to be all I would do. Uh, I've assisted. The thing I, a hundred percent seen is that, and I don't know whether it's based on, uh, so Eric and Owen had, uh, who was the Josh Parker, the Candelia guy, um, that was on on their show, mm-hmm. and he talked about sort of all the science of digestion, right? And I think in all the changes that the reptile's bodies undergo as part of that digestive right. process, in terms of organs swelling yep, and the yep. blood, you know, all the, the, the blood metabolism changes kicking all into these gear, things. yeah, all that good stuff. All that stuff. I can tell you a hundred percent that if an animal willingly takes food, it just just the uh, nutrition it gets from that item is exponentially greater than if you push it in. If it's not doing taking it willingly, right. uh, it doesn't digest it very well. It doesn't it doesn't get the nutrition out of it that it yeah. does if it took the very same item willingly. Like its body's I, just kind of going through the motions. I don't have a great explanation, but it's true. Yeah. I've seen it. 
That makes sense. Like if if I mean when it's when it's hungry, I mean just like when we're hungry, you know, your your body's going to tell you, "Hey, it's time to eat." And then if you're not hungry, you're not going to eat. Right, and if you're not in the I don't, I don't even know if it's hormonal or if it's in the, you know, the mental processes and then that initiates the physical processes. Mm-hmm. I, I think we think of them as sort of uh strictly physical processes and I I certainly have seen evidence just in terms of keeping reptiles that that's that's not really the case. I do think something, you know, an assisted I well and the other whole whole bit, right, is necessarily we're into a question of the difference between in in that same vein, assist versus force is huge. Uh, If you can get it into its mouth and coerce it into eating it, that is exponentially better than you just pushing it down. Uh, If you're at a push it down state, even if, like, say you're doing tails, right, on baby uh, Alterna or baby Terai or, or whatever, which is which is what I've always done with them. If they, you know, if they're mm-hmm. some of them, they're even too small to take even the yeah, tiniest yeah. thing. Yeah, tails are my my thing of choice because I I got some Boiga from from Jordan Russell and for uh, I don't know how many weeks after they came in, I was having to force feed them mouse tails until they started eating on their own again. And that's right? just, I've gotten you, really good at doing that. If you put that tail in there until you can't hold on to it anymore, especially with a Boiga, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit, you got to be a little more cautious than a rhino. Um, and it voluntarily takes that bit that you had held on to. You know, it chews it down and takes it. That's going to do so much better than if you have to get that whole thing down there and you're, mm-hmm. like, fighting. Um, just in terms of, I'm telling you, that snake's more robust and more likely to eat. The, the tails, you run into problems with things like baby hognose, especially eastern hognose that want toads. Um, toads or toad scent. Um, that, that becomes... Uh, a bigger problem because as a broad snake, tails don't work as well. Yeah. So that's why, you know, baby Alterna and Leonis and stuff are perfect for tails. Mm-hmm. Um, but rhinos, they're a little thick for it even. I w- I'd be more apt to do like a pink head. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so th- it's a spectrum of things. Something, you know, nothing nothing always works perfectly, but... Uh, it's just all about finding that one thing that does and roll with it for that animal. <laughs> Yeah. Whatever right? whatever you know, foot and, and ends I up mean, in the door first. That... Sorry, go ahead. I said whatever foot ends up in the door first. That's totally. the one we'll use. Totally. Yeah. And I know everyone's hot to trot on the Reptilink sense and stuff, and mm-hmm. I do think they certainly are useful and have a place. Um, one thing I can say from having seen them, they're, they're not a magic bullet. <laughs> so it drives me a little bit up the wall when everyone's like, oh, this changes the game. If you're dealing with stuff that maybe baby Antaresia that are already F4, F5, and they're just a little bit stubborn relative mm-hmm. to their buddies, yeah, maybe it is a magic bullet. Uh, I can tell you that rhinos don't have – it didn't make any difference whatsoever. I think the the big thing with rhinos is that maybe even more than the food is how they eat it. They just want to eat stuff out of the water. So even yeah. uh, floating pinks, floating defrosted pinks can – can do you better than just, I mean, you can put a live pink in there with any of the things they have, whether it's, I have tried them all, you know, an ole or a uh, frog or fish and all those things. And I, there were none that wouldn't just take a live pink that, that took any of those that were sent it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would take like a floated frozen thawed pink. Huh. 
I think it's that motion. And tadpoles especially, you know, really, really have a, a unique motion. I think if you really wanted, if you had access to it and you really wanted to feel good about what you were feeding them, and you had a buddy who didn't mind giving you baby or tadpole, erotis tadpoles or whatever at, mm-hmm. at a couple bucks instead of the 20 bucks you get as a froglet or whatever, um, feed them those, man, and I, I guarantee you they'd eat them. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're fairly big hatchlings, though, right? Like, they're not tiny. They're not like chondro or corn snake small. Like, they're, they're sizable, are they not? No, they're about that size. Oh, okay. I mean, they're not tiny, tiny. I got some. Yeah, uh, I was thinking they were a little newborn than Solomon that. Island tree boas um, last year, and those comparatively those, definitely smaller. Yeah, those are like I saw some of those at a show a while back for sale. They had them for like forty bucks a piece, and I saw how small they were. I said, "There is absolutely no way in hell those things are eating." <laughs> and they had a table. <laughs> yeah, full almost of them. certainly true. I was like, yeah. "There's no way. There's absolutely no way those things have even had a meal in them yet." It was oh, insane yeah, totally. how um, tiny they were. These are not that small. The funny thing that is, though, every year, uh, I sort of, by the time, because I still have last year's and, and all that, so I sort of get used to that size, and then when, when they hatch, I, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're they're always smaller than I remember. Yeah. <laughs> by the time, you know, by the time they come out the next year, I'm always perpetually at that reaction of, oh, yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're always smaller than I expected. <laughs> See, I'm used to, I guess I'm kind of, uh, with my Baird's rats, I'm kind of used to, like, big babies, because Baird's rats are pretty big for, you know, a, a rat snake in comparison to corns or anything else like that. You know, they're coming out of the egg at damn near a foot, and Baird's are... Yeah, I would say these big. are probably uh, about seven inches, and maybe mm-hmm. the, the diameter of a pen. They're about the size of a pen, I would say. Like a regular ballpark. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um. So, I I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen that many. I don't know. We always talk about oh, compared to this and compared to that. Yeah. But, uh, it, it's I don't know. That's tough. I don't I don't have something on the mind to say that that's what it's like. <laughs> other than to say I think it's fair to say they're about the size of a pen. Gotcha. So how do you like to keep them? You keep, I mean, they're they're kept on the cooler side, right? Like they're not a, they're almost a, like a montane species, right? Yeah, they definitely are. Uh, in terms of where they're from and stuff, they they are. Uh, but at the same time, they're not like maybe a mandarin or certainly the porphyraceous stuff, the yeah. red mountain racer species. Those things will do very poorly if you get them kind of even into the mid 80s mm-hmm. these are not nearly that sensitive uh certainly in um at denver zoo when they used to have a fair number of them um they had them in the warm section of the reptile house that uh i mean shoot they wouldn't be getting below maybe 80 and mm-hmm. they could get up into the mid to upper 80s and they do okay uh, in that so comparative to a lot of those cooler, you know, as I say, the Red Mountain Racer stuff, Olandorfi, Mandarin, the things we usually think of as Asian rats, um, they're more resilient than those. But generally speaking, yes, I mean, heck, I got first meals into uh, into a whole bunch of rhinos maybe five or six years ago. We were starting to get into sort of late summer, early fall, and I didn't realize the house heat wasn't on 
Um, so I got first meals into them, and then that very night it got like 60 degrees, and none of them were on any heat. They were just sitting in little Ziploc tubs, and <laughs> all of them kept it down fine and did just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that wouldn't be the case for most things, for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely not. Except for maybe brettles, because brettles don't care. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think a brettle be okay, diamond probably be okay, but uh, even a corn snake probably wouldn't love you for that. Yeah. Whether brettles are on the sun or whether they're on, like, the Arctic Circle, they're going to be fine. <laughs> they don't care. <clears throat> That's yeah, I mean, honestly, kind of um, the way I keep them nowadays would be, uh, you know, how folks nowadays keep diamonds, keep brettles, those sorts of things. In terms of, um, I just keep them in uh, those old-school Neodesha two-foot cubes in mm-hmm. pairs all year round, and... Uh, especially during the winter. So I, for the most part, I started using UVA bulbs just sort of with everything just to, to give some light and yeah. and see, you know, see see what, if anything, that does um, for snakes. I know we don't think of snakes that way, but um, during the warmer parts of the year, I'll have that. And then even through the winter, I'll have that. And then when I want him um, to kind of wake up, I'll switch to like a 29-watt uh, indoor flood that'll... Uh, sort of the same thing, I, exact same thing that I would always have on with a monitor, you know, a port right. monitor in the same same cage, same idea. Um, and so once I want them, you know, it's kind of we hit early March and I say, okay, guys, you know, let's let's for sure uh, be up and at them at this point. Uh, I'll put that on there, and it's got a little cork basking shelf that's seven or eight inches from that light, and they'll come and they'll sit and. You know, they'll sit at 110 for 20 minutes and then they'll move off. Yeah, and do the thing. Same yeah. exact thing a monitor would do mm-hmm. in the same, same spot. Uh, maybe they'll throw a single single loop at it, you know, a couple inches, and then uh, they'll move off it entirely and they'll kind of sit in, you know, the whole cage is set up like a, a Rita stack, basically, with cork bark and things. And so there's a whole gradation of temperature down to maybe, at, you know, in the winter probably 60 or so, especially at night, maybe mm-hmm. high 50s at night. Um, during the winter, again, with the kind of the no-heat UVA bulb, maybe it's 70, in the low 70s, something like that. And I'm not feeding them that time of year, uh, and they'll do fine there. At the same time, man, I uh, when I lived in Michigan, I was in a not well-insulated house and the uh, in the basement, and... I measured, or, you know, temp gunned one out. It was moving around in the 30s, you know, wow. 38, 39, 40 degrees. It was moving really slowly, but it was moving, you know. Oh, it wow. sticks tongue out, kind of hold it out there for 10 seconds mm-hmm. or so, flicking it up and down and pull it back. Um, I mean, they were, again, moving around. The same thing, porphyracia, red mountain racers. At, the, at those temperatures, with, I had to put additional heat on them, uh, even in brumation. Because uh, they look dead. <laughs> you hit them <laughs> like they look like if you hit them on the table that they would just like clunk, you know. Yeah. There was a. I don't know if you listen to Joe and Melissa's podcast, uh, but they had Jim Harrison on a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about a a monocled cobra that had literally like someone had shipped it or something, and it ended up in the wrong place, and so it got confiscated, and they it was like the middle of winter somewhere or something like that, and this thing they said it was literally frozen solid, like frozen stiff. And uh-huh. they, th- they thawed it out, and that thing came right back to life. 
Yeah, I, and I know mm. Justin had the same thing with the Brettles, and I had the same thing with the Rhino. So, yeah, I mean, I've, it's crazy. I've seen it, man. I got one that was like that, and um, yeah, literally, it's just left it in the tub, and it warmed up, and it was fine, you know? Uh, that was in Michigan as well, where it was same sort of deal, where it was supposed to be coming to me, and it just wound up being, you know, 10 hours late on a day that was 10 degrees outside mm-hmm. or something, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was no problems whatsoever. So what's the what's the kind of feeding schedule you have yours on if you're only feeding them for a part of the year? Uh, not not much. I mean that that is that sort of highlights one one thing that people do wrong with them is they feed them way too much. Mm-hmm. As babies, you know, I'll feed them once a week or so, um, not more, often less. Um, and it'd be you know again, I suppose like anything, right? If you have those the baby condors you just hatched out, I'm sure you're going to be super super excited for them, and you're going to especially you know getting them to eat. Are they eating all this sort of stuff? Um, you know, you're probably going to be on five to seven days, and you're itching to do it right by the yeah. time they come. At this point, it's sort of like you know, I, I, I several hundred babies into these and whatever, and I'm like, well, I know you know, I'll look at them and say, okay, well maybe a couple. You know, I'll give you another one or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not concerned with growing them up fast. And they don't kind of, unlike a lot of colubrids, again, red mountain racer, same deal. You can breed those things in a year, man, and they, it doesn't hurt them. If you've got them dialed in, yeah. um, literally, they'll go to – I've had them when I was working in pro exotics the second time. I bred those things so that they were literally laying eggs when they are 12 months old, you know, that sort of thing. They were bred under a year old, so laying perfect flushes. Um so that can definitely uh, be done with other things. These are not that way. Um, they're much more likely to take uh, like three, uh, at least three years. So, which you know, again, being born halfway through the year, to me, they're somewhere two and a half to three and a half at least. Um, males maybe on the lower side of that. Mm-hmm. Females very rarely under that. Uh, and certainly, if you're feeding them. Every seven to ten days, not a lot. Yeah. Uh, so what? What do you? Why do you think they're not more popular? I mean, they're definitely. I think there's more people keeping them now than there than there was previously. You know, in the early two thousands. But what do you think it is about about them that that people aren't picking them up? Like, why um, aren't they well, as I popular think... as some of the other stuff? Because I think they're cool as hell. Like, I think they're gorgeous snakes. They look awesome. But yet they kind of fly yeah. under the radar. I just don't think they're that all that many produced. Um, you know, I think that that depresses it a little bit, and that goes back to, frankly, up until maybe early late two uh, thousands. You know, up to twenty ten or twenty eleven. Excuse me. They're weird snakes. They're more relative to colubrids. They're more like a python or a boa in terms of breeding, um, and so people would would not do them right. Uh, with these, their follicles get really big before they ovulate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if you're used to breeding corn snakes, if I gave Joe a pair of them, you know, and said, "Hey, man, go nuts," you put them together, and then be like, oh, "Okay, she's grabbing. I'm going to pull out the male." You're either getting infertile or not, um, and that happens to a lot of big. Colubrid breeder. I mean, it happened to Kathy Love. I remember talking to her about the things when I had first gotten them, and so we're talking 2002, 2003. She was super excited about them. I think she'd gotten some of those 
plow snakes do or whatever. Um, and, you know, but they didn't work for her. You know, she couldn't couldn't get them figured out. And it's that uh, you just got to leave them together. And that, that can get a little bit hairy because the males will bite and beat up the females a little bit sometimes, especially you can get kind of crazy males that'll, that'll really do that. And I have had it where I've had to pull them early, saying, knowing that in doing so, it's like, well, I might, just get get a little, I might get nothing, but I just can't leave them together. Yeah, they get a little you know? little aggressive. Yeah, and they, I mean, males together, they go nuts. Um, and really, you'll get, you know, the dominant male there will do some damage to the other one. Um, so, um, I think that was a big part of it. It's kind of people were, like, big uh, commercial breeders had, were initially very excited, and then I think kind of got a little bit... Uh, Burned out on them. I think, honestly, I think they're more popular now than ever. Yeah. I mean, I get emails about them all week. It's it's kind of crazy, and you know, I, I'm not fancy to sell any of them, and so I, I'm sort of like I owe all these people an email, and it's only going to be a pair or two or three or whatever out of last year's stuff. And I mean, heck, there's probably 35 or 40 people on that email list. You know. Um yeah. So we'll see how that goes, but. uh I just don't think there are all that many of them produced, and uh, I think they're they're I, a lot well, I, like when I lived in Michigan. They're a lot like rough scales in a sense. Like now that there's a handful mm-hmm. of people that have them and are actually working towards breeding them, I think we're finally going to start to see more. You know, people are there's going to be more availability, and so they're going to kind of start to take off a little bit. You know, they're not going to get crazy like corns or uh, you know carpets or anything like that, but they're not going to be completely unattainable like they were, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, totally. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, the heck, I've sold them for the same price for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, fair babies. Um, they're you know, just as much now, and based on the interest versus demand, they could probably be be more. Um, when I lived in Michigan, I sold Brian. Uh, a whole handful of them every year just to kind of pay for my rent and house and stuff. And so I think he did uh, make them more popular just with the exposure that he had yeah. and stuff. Uh, so, you know, I, I every year I take him a whole host of them to, yeah, to literally keep the roof over your head, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I think that's helped. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would say the interest is is high relative to sort of what I'm used to. And more people know what they are, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of if you had them at a show, you're much more likely nowadays that people would say, oh, is that a rhino rat snake versus 15 years ago? It was what the heck is that? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so aside from those, you are you still you doing anything with Alterna? Is that still a, a regular? Are you breeding those? Are you just keeping those? Like what's up with the... The status on those? No, so a, a couple, two or three years ago, um, I had reached a point. I have a very limited space, and I reached a point where I had, you know, more than a hundred snakes. Which, you know, some people say that's not a lot, you know, or whatever. But just with my time constraints and things, it mm-hmm. was like it was always kind of a bummer because there were maybe forty snakes that I really liked to go you know, go see and hang out and play with and, and whatever. Um, but it's it's not uh, easy to do that or a good feeling if you then have 
80 others that you're kind of sitting on. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I mean, that, that would be true. I had, oh, in the mid thirties to 40 gray bands, um, in the mid forties to fifties of ARI, um, in addition to, to all this other stuff and, you know, however many rhinos and whatever. And it was just kind of like, uh, you know what, I'm going to get rid of some of these racks and I'm going to put display cages that have lights in them and this sort of thing. Uh, and so that's, that's what I've done. And honestly, despite, uh, selling some really beautiful animals that yeah, I can't get back or, uh, you know, any of that stuff I don't regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, racks make a lot of sense. They're, they definitely work and are easy. Um, but it's not, uh, for me, where I'm at with time and things that I enjoy. I have, uh, you know, so the cages have lights in them. And then my room lights are actually the red bulbs. So that when the lights, you know, the, I have the lights on timers. Um, it's pretty nifty. Uh, little Wi-Fi timers or whatever. So you can mm-hmm. set them with the app on your phone. And uh, certainly a lot easier than doing the old dial uh, every month. Um, doing that. And then the rhinos I don't see at night, but, uh, you know, all my bows and pythons and stuff. Yeah, they're I see about. them doing cool behaviors that you wouldn't see if you just turned the lights on. Uh, so that's, for me, it's it's totally been worth it. So long story short is, uh, no, I don't have, I sold uh, all those Alterna, all those there I A lot of those went to the same guy, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, but, uh, yeah. No, I, I don't. Uh, I don't regret it. Yeah, because my dad has a really big group of Alterna right now, man. And those things, every time I every time I go over to the house, I gotta play with them a little bit. They're, they're cool. just so cool. I love them as babies and as adults. <clears throat> you know, they're. Uh, I mean, as adults, honestly, they can be a little bit uh, compared to so, like a rhino, like would be. I was trying to think of how to contextualize like the size they should be. In terms of especially girth, um, it should be like an inch, maybe to an inch and a half across, something mm-hmm. like that. And and they have a depression along the spine. You should be able to see that. I mean, most bows and pythons have the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't keep them that way. Um, so to me, alternate can look a little sloppy as adult comparison. You know, they don't look quite as like muscled out and like really trim and fit and whatever. Um, but they're cool. I do like them a lot. And, um, I know you, <laughs> you've expressed skepticism about uh, the locality stuff. All the stuff that I had was all either F1 or F2. I did, well, safer, I did have some of Tim Gebhardt's uh, Big Hill stuff, you know, that uh, mm-hmm. chaos stuff and all that. I had some of that. Um, but otherwise, we're talking F1, uh, F2 at the most, snakes. That uh, I'm telling you, you they all... They all look like one another, and they didn't look like something else, even if it was only ten miles away. Oh yeah, I know no, that, I know that's you're skeptical not, about them. But my they, skepticism uh, is like just with the extremes that people kind of take it. They're like, yeah, this is a you know a highway two seventy seven, but it came from this rock two miles up from this sign. But you got to walk ten paces from that to this giant X I painted on the ground, and then you got to make a left at that, and then at this single rock in the middle of a field, that's where this one came from. <laughs> Like, I do understand no, I, the I county differences and, I mean, and stuff, the, but know, it just, people just take it so stuff, far. Right? Yeah, totally. I mean, and as I said, the proof's in the pudding. Is, are they genetically isolated? And if they're not, then 
you're going to get a whole bunch of looks. And if you get a whole bunch of looks, that means they're, you know, it's not a tight group. Mm-hmm. Some of that Western stuff, man, you know, if you, you can just look at them and say, all these look the same. And even the ones from, you know, it's two miles down the road, they, they literally, they all look the same and they look different from mm-hmm. those uh, two miles away. But those probably are genetically isolated to those cuts. Like, they literally can't make it from one to the other. Uh, and if they do through private land and stuff, it's such a small number that it really we are seeing like sort of these isolated pockets. Mm-hmm. But generally, see, I, I certainly appreciate your point. The the one good thing about this, at least, is if you're buying them from the people who legitimately collected them themselves, that's a whole different thing than saying, well, the bag from Indo said our friend. Exactly. That's, that's my other, yeah, that's the other thing for me is like, Unless you went and got them yourself, like how can you be a hundred percent sure that that's exactly what you were sold? You know what it was sold as. Yeah, totally. And I mean, yeah. I, I think my own perspective on that is just to, generally speaking, I like the idea of it, mm-hmm. and to the extent that they have a consistent look, I think the Condor thing actually makes a ton of sense. Where you say, you could say whatever. You know, certainly there's the, pro- the semi-problematic fuck fuck um, mm-hmm. where but if you just say fuck fuck type or whatever, and they all, you know, you got them as babies and they look consistent as babies, they have consistent patterning, I think that makes some sense. Um, you know, I know it caused consternation. Matt, uh, Matt has this snake now, but uh, I got a red measle chondro, and everyone here said, you know, all the, the chondro... Uh, literati, right, or like, there are no red chondros on Misol. There's no way. I mean, how many Misol chondros have we seen? Exactly. Less than 100. How do we know that? How do you know that? Yeah. Just because you haven't seen it, you don't know. Like, the, the level of certainty there to me on the opposite end is just as galling. But, um, no, I, I'm with you, man. I, I appreciate the point. I like the, the type thing. And, you know, uh, I think we just need to be recognized that we all <laughs> need to be a lot less certain about everything. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean I, I it, and not that I don't not care about localities, but like with my Baird's rats, for instance, you know, I was talking to Joe and Melissa because we had them on the show uh, about two weeks ago, and he was I was kept asking him why he hadn't gotten into Baird's yet because you know he's got all kinds of other colubrids. I'm like you're missing the the secret ingredient man because these things are great like i love bear's <laughs> rat snakes <clears throat> and he's like well you know i don't really want to worry about like the mo- locality thing you know i've seen some at shows but i don't know where they're from so i don't want to get them and i'm like it's a bear's like who cares <laughs> like no one's keeping them like no one does anything with them except for you know the handful of people here that appreciate them and know what they're what they got but like i have a pair of loma altas from daniel parker my biggest pair is supposed to be the Mexican locality. I have zero verification on that. And then I have another pair that's uh-huh. just completely undocumented. And it's and I have some other people that messaged me and were asking me about them. And they're like, well, you know, I want to get some, but I don't know what locality I should be. I'm like, why are we making such a big deal out of this? Like, if you're just keeping it to keep it, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I think I, I can appreciate that point. I mean, and even, um, you know, from my perspective, I, I think it's, I have something of an old school perspective, you know, it's the reading stolen world, right? It's the, it's the Hank Bolt sales pitch. I love a story, you know, I, I love it when the snake has a story, but I have to like the critter in the first place. Yeah. If I don't 
have that love for it that you're talking about, the story isn't going to save it. You know, I think the Condro stuff, it's it's awesome when you look at, you have records going back to 1970 and this sort of thing. I think that's awesome. Um, and I do really appreciate and like that mm-hmm. when, that's, when that's feasible and that exists. And sort of it just becomes, it's like a leopard gecko or a corn snake or whatever, where if you're dealing with something that's just, I mean, it's, I have a single leopard gecko that I've had for 10 years or whatever, like right. a super giant. It's just a bad little, bad little dude. You know, he comes and scratches at the front of the tub when he wants to eat. <laughs> um, you know, he's just cool. Um, and I'm totally, totally okay with that. At the same time, I think it's fantastic that all that work was put in a handful of years ago to get the actual uh, different species, what there's like eight or 10 or 11 different species of what we call leopard geckos, and no doubt our cap, you know, our F twenty um, yeah, yeah. leopard geckos are just a genetic meat grinder of all that stuff. You know, I'd never put a scientific name on that critter because it's just it's a product of captivity. Doesn't make them any less cool um, int- intrinsically in terms of it itself, but at the same time, I totally appreciate the Angermon you and the you know all those different things um, that are that some folks have found and are working with it's just funny with the beards because it's like it doesn't matter because there's not enough people keeping them for it to matter you know (laughs) it's not like condors where there's people that are specifically looking for you know manox or something like that you know with with the beards it's like it's either texas or it's mexico and then you know loma altars are the only ones that i've noticed picked out or separated from other localities i'm sure there's a few others that i just don't see um but man i love those things i'm so excited to 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 do stuff with those in the couple you know the upcoming years and i don't know if you've ever kept any but i love them no it's it's funny you know it's probably one of the only colubrids you could pick that that i couldn't say that i have uh not as i can recall um as you highlight they've never been particularly common i remember when the Subak book dusty Rhodes book came out uh seeing those mexican ones and those did look super sharp mm-hmm. um and even uh i think maybe tim used to have some of those if he doesn't anymore but they uh and just with that orange and silver and stuff they get super sharp they're underrated there's not enough people do it like when i go to shows now i look out for barrett's because you don't see that many of them and there's usually only a pair available at, at most Repticons that I go to, and so I'll go there. And if I find a pair, I'll, I'll snag them. Yeah. I snatch no, them I, up, man. I love it, man. And, and heck, even, you know, the, the chondro thing, you know, I bought plenty of uh, locality-type chondros, uh, farm locality-type chondros, but I also, man, especially when it was Vlad, all those uh, <laughs> those F2 Arubiacs and Arubiac mm-hmm. Marokis and all that stuff, man, uh, those those were killer. I mean, heck, you, I'm sure you've seen uh, Dave's F2 Arubiac that he took to uh, his uh, captive lineage stuff and produced a bunch of crazy looking babies. I don't, he, he's good about posting up that stuff as it develops, but uh, I don't know that I've seen it. But you know, he got that mail for me. That was the craziest, can't be it, you know, craziest Bushmaster baby of the year. Um, and, but the funny thing is, I'm not a chondro guy per se, and no one wanted to buy that snake. And then Dave took it and made unreal things yeah. with it. But, I mean, that was a snake that, even as an adult, was orange and had black and blue and green and yellow. Um, it was crazy. That's um, the thing I love about Condros the most, though, 
is like in, we're in a, we're currently in a state of the hobby where someone can hatch something out and say, I know exactly what this is going to look like in five years, so I can price it accordingly. And there's not a single person on on in the hobby that can tell me this isn't going to look like that. And with Condros, <laughs> that completely throws that out the window. It's like nobody knows what this thing's going to look like. It could be something special and fantastic and one of a kind, or it could be a green snake that's still going to be pretty. But no one knows. Like even the guys that have been doing it for you know thirty years, they're not going to be able to tell you exactly what's going to happen with that thing. They might be able to no, tell totally. like, little I'm, tiny I'm, bits, I'm but you, and I, I like that's the thing about them that I love the most is like no one has a clue. It's a complete guessing game. And even then, it's personal taste, man. I love the mustard condros, and I love even kind of the the mangy looking biox. You know, when mm-hmm. they get sort of the blacks and yeah, things that and doing dark, dirty. I, I love those. Yeah. Yeah, you know, other other people, that's not their taste. You know, certainly I know the mustards fits into that, where some people love them. Yeah, the mustards don't them, really do know. it for me. Not really. But, I mean, that's fine. That That's, you know, it's one of those where it's like, okay, cool. Well, then, you know, if we're both keeping condors or whatever, you send that one to me, and I'll send you, yeah. you, send you something else, <laughs> that sort of thing, you know? I, I mean, I still, like, it's a chondro, so it's going to be gorgeous regardless. It's just the mustard thing. I'm just, that's not something I have any interest in really pursuing. But then you have guys like Justin Wilbanks who, like, that's their jam. Like, they're all about some mustards, and that's what they're wanting to reproduce and make more of. And he's making it happen, and he's doing it. Totally. I mean, so it, there is, you know, there's someone out there to appreciate all that stuff. And, Honestly, those with the wacky chondro looks, especially out of the captive lineage or the, the locale cross stuff, as as much as I, you know, I love locality snakes. Um, with chondros, I I was full porn into what are clearly plainly hybrids. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that F2 Arubiac, Why is it making crazy colors? Because that's a hybrid snake, man. <laughs> it's so funny to me that you can, with pretty much any of those those locality crosses, you throw some bioc in it, and it just it takes it up a, yeah. a notch and the Waminas too totally. like apparently Waminas are a pretty big big wild card when it comes to mixing that into bloodlines it certainly seems like any anything anytime you're taking a red baby maker into something that's strictly yellow you can get some wacky stuff man. and mm-hmm. I, I think it's just you know speaks to adding a whole you're unlocking you know you're adding parts of genome that, that haven't been there for tens of thousands of years yeah, that's. I didn't even think about it from that angle. That's that's a very valid point. Remerging the ancient DNA. Right. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of <laughs> diversity was probably there, and then it was selected away from yeah. you know to those yellow babies, um, and then you know now you're you're putting it back in the mix, and it's mm-hmm. like there's all sorts of stuff going on, um, and uh, honestly, I. All those lookout cross stuff that I had were typically fed really well, um, and I don't know that that's you know everyone says we'll see you can you can put it to the test that Biox are easier to start generally. I, I've seen that a little bit, but um, you know I think as much as anything, it's you're just adding you're you're really spicing that up, and mm-hmm. even with what was it the lemon tree chondros and stuff, you do see if you just have that super tight gene pool that you can get. You know, a, gen- a generally weaker critter, mm-hmm. um, and you know that that's feeding, that's overall health condition, everything. Um, so by 
making those hybrids, you're, you know, it's not a surprise that they're they're beefed up. Hybrid vigor, it's a thing. Yeah. So that's the other thing I like about about Chondros is you don't have people that like if you only do designer stuff, there's not people that are like you don't actually like Chondros. Like you're not a real Chondro guy. And the same goes for the guys that are well, like low locality the specific. Guys. <laughs> Everyone All just the designers. Stuff. Yeah. The original dude. It's like you keep Chondros cool. Me too. Like, what do you like? Designers or localities? And even, no matter what you pick, you're not going to get crucified for it on Facebook or anywhere else. Everyone's just you know that's what you do. That's cool, man. Like we're all here for the same reason, you know. Yeah. No, they're they're cool, man. They are. Uh... They're cool. It's surprising Colorado has so much of a, and I think it has to be the Bushmaster influence being here. But yeah, uh, it's not. It's, it's a little surprising because obviously, so man, it, it is a tough place to keep a condor up for sure. You're how far are you? You're you, you're homies with Harlan, I'm sure. Yeah, so he's he's out on the western part of the state. Okay, uh, so he's over the mountains. Um, probably take about four four and a half hours to get over to his spot. Gotcha. But he is a cool dude. I mean, heck, you know, I used to, uh, we'd wind up at Bushmaster at the same time and we're chatting. You know, he always, he always jokes about we, uh, we were both at a stage where we were buying a lot of blood pythons and, uh, so we'd pick some out and then we'd be looking at each other's buckets and we'd be swapping them back and forth and stuff, <laughs> saying, oh, I'll, you give me that one and I'll give you this one, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I've known Harlan for a while and he's a super legit dude. He's a trip, man. Every time I talk to him on the phone, he, he's he's cracking me up. Well, you're you're less well situated for it being out uh, on the uh, Eastern time, because uh, usually I'll start chatting with him at eleven o'clock or whatever, and then I'm off at two in the morning. <laughs> but uh, for you, that's four. <laughs> yep, yep. I make sure that it's it's semi early in the day when I jump into that. I don't mind it. It doesn't bother me at all, man. Like, cause it's not like he's just no, talking to talk. Like, there's almost always something that I'm learning new with every conversation I'm having with him. No, totally. I mean, with us, it's we're you know rehashing old guy stuff or whatever. But uh-huh. uh, as you say, there's always new nuggets and stuff. You know, no, it's, I love talking to him. So and even there's stuff that happened 20 years ago that he's telling me or I'm telling him or whatever. It's mm-hmm. pretty funny. And you, you don't have any condors right now? No, I don't. Um, I did like them a lot, and especially, as I say, I, I think I mostly saw it, especially with Vladimir, as a chance, whether through Ryan or directly from Cameron, to get uh, some really cool stuff, you know, that I've never, I don't know that I've ever had a true sort of designer condro, you know, from mm-hmm. from those lineages. I think it's super cool, um, but it was never... I mean, shoot, those have never been cheap snakes, and it was never, um, I think, something that I just kind of made made happen. And I saw those things that Vladimir was making, and was like, these, in some ways, are even more of a wild card. They have a chance to be an even crazier-looking snake um, that's at a much closer price range. And you, you do have some people that kind of just turn their nose up at that stuff. So mm-hmm. it was like, hey, man, you know, I would... Uh, even if it was just getting them from Ryan, you know, he only had to have them for six hours and he'd get, you know, money out of me, you know, upcharge out of me. But, uh, they, uh, you know, there, there was some cool stuff and I definitely got a lot of those cool things. I love seeing them change. 
that is, I'm with you. That's the cool thing about Conrad. You know, pick pick a cool baby that you have faith in. Mm-hmm. As you said, anything into Biak or northern stuff into Marokis. Uh, you know, I love those high white Condras. That's probably my favorite. Yeah. If I had to pick just one of the designer sort of aspects. And I had one for Rubiak Maroki that was just, I put it on the Instagram. I don't know if you <laughs> made it back far enough in my page to see it, but that was one of the, yeah, I, did. I did progression I did. shots of that one. That thing was insane, man. I mean, it had 150 white plus white scales on the thing. Um, and the cool thing, the thing I always loved about them turning white is that, as far as I know, they don't change off of white. <laughs> so it was always like, okay, plus one. <laughs> <laughs> They're staying. Um, and typically they do get, it seemed to, always seemed to me that the white scales got bigger. Um, mm-hmm. So you could kind of even look at them and anticipate some of that white scale stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if I had to pick one designer chondra that I know is, some folks have been into that, but it's not not as big. But whether it's uh, off the dorsal or kind of the flower thing, I love I love those. Mm-hmm. And so you you knew Rico. Uh huh. Yeah. So I had promised you a story about that. So um, a buddy of mine used to work, or still works at the aquarium, and he would send me a bunch of. Uh, bunch of geckos and snakes and things to sell because he, he's not much for uh, not much for internet sales and that sort of thing so he mm-hmm. sent them to me and uh, now he does Tinley every year and but he as I said wasn't really shipping snakes this sort of thing so even once Rico had left the aquarium he would give uh, my buddy would give them to Rico to ship out to me and one of the last times that that that, it, that had happened Rico had put in the box a half dozen of these male, you know, 50% possible het pied ball pythons and said, they're your problem now, dude. <laughs> I hope I didn't oversell it, but it, it was it was funny and I appreciated it. You know, people don't even think of him having, he used to have leopard geckos and ball pythons and all sorts of kind of commercial stuff, especially once he won. Uh, it's just it's crazy like as someone who came into the condor thing late uh you know i like i said when i when i said at the beginning of the episode you know i, me- I remember seeing our signal herp uh ads and reptiles you know where they had all the different condros and emeralds and stuff on there and thinking man those things are so cool uh and you know seeing the name and seeing just how everyone who knew him talks about him, you know, so much. I don't, it's just, it's crazy that there's that one single person can have such an impact on just one corner of the hobby like that. But it's also a bummer, yeah, man. Cause totally. it sounds like he just, he was, it sounds like he was such a cool guy, you know, and he, he, he did so much now for, for everyone that's kind of just getting into him and that's been passed down and it's, it's unfortunate, but, it's cool that there's, you know, guys like yourself and Julander and, uh, you know, all the people that knew him that, that can tell us this kind of stuff and keep the information he had yeah. and, and pass it down, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, definitely a sweet guy. I remember being, you know, his website, especially if you think of it in the time, uh, in the what, 2002, 2003, just so, so impressive. You know, in the same way as Maxwell's site and that sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. You know, through my buddy Tom, they had worked together at Lowry Park. So, 
you know, he knew him really well. And so every time then we would go to Daytona, we'd hang out with him and stuff. So definitely super sweet dude. Uh, super nice guy with a ton of cool animals. I remember him producing those uh, patternless, you know, anaconda phase or patternless emeralds back in 2002 or 2003, uh, trying to talk him out of some of those, you know, back back when really you didn't even see those as babies. I know Keith got some camera and a couple other people did more recently, but 15 years ago that I don't even know how many people had seen him. You know, before Rico had produced that, that first litter of them, I, I don't know how many people had ever seen one of those yeah. as a baby, you know, what they looked like. Um, so, yeah, no, it, definitely an awesome dude. And you, transitioning, uh, went to Australia with Burke recently, right? You went in the last couple weeks ago, a couple yeah, months man. ago? Back in, what, end of October, into November. Yeah. There was, how was that, and how did that go? Or no, end of November into December. Yeah. Um, it was awesome, man. It was so awesome that, you know, you didn't want to leave, and then immediately, literally immediately, um, on the flight back, kind of planning it out to go again. Um, I've already, you know, bought a ticket. I'm going back in October. Excuse me. Um, and, uh, yeah, now I'm going to start going. <laughs> After this one, I'm already planning to go back to Cannes. Uh, next, you know, this time next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I'm going to get on the twice a year plan. <laughs> and how many how many times have you been so far? Just once, man. Oh, okay. I've traveled a fair bit, but that was my first time going to Australia, and it was just the whole. You know, it's it's not as weird as going to Belarus or Kyrgyzstan, yeah, or, or whatever, Czechoslovakia, um, or whatever. It, yeah, it's sort of this is you know not all that different from going to, you know, Belgium or I just got back from Ireland and stuff. It is, it is very sort of similar to that, except, hey, man, there's a scrub python crawling <laughs> out of the road. Um, so that's a little bit different. Uh, and it is, you know, super, uh, I don't know that I'd be super keen to drive in Brisbane or in uh, Sydney, but around Kansas, fine. And then you're, when you're rural, it's just like super chill. And heck, man, they're, could be a python around on the road around every corner. Uh, it's it's unreal uh, and truly amazing. And it, I I love field herping. I don't get the opportunity to do it a ton. My in the last couple of years, my biggest exposure has just been uh, my work is in sort of what the old building was situated in, sort of a <laughs> the last patch of undeveloped prairie in, mm-hmm. in that area. Um, and just on the, the the sidewalks, literally going around the building, uh, there'd be garter snakes. Uh, little, uh, the first one that I had seen, I, I just need, to, need to think about or look up what uh, what the common name of this is. Um, but uh, a lot of bull snakes, you know. And then the cool bit is that uh, lion snake. So that was the first one I'd ever seen in Colorado. Uh, we get plains garters, uh, western terrestrial garters, and then big bull snakes. And mm-hmm. the funny bit is, uh, walking that, it's not your individual odds of seeing a given snake, not particularly high, but if everyone, who, you know, all 3,500 people who work there or whatever know that you're the snake guy, uh, they'll be calling you every day in the summer saying, hey, man, come check this one out <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, 
which is always a good show then. You know, you go pick up a you know, five foot bull snake that's all huff and puff, but that's all they are. Um, you know, and everyone sort of gets a show out of it and whatever. And I love that. Um, they're super cool. Even as I say, bull snakes, spider snakes, I love all that stuff. But, so then to make it a ten foot scrub python. Yeah. Holy moly, man. You know, great, 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 great. And I've always loved scrub pythons. Omahara pythons are some of my favorite snakes. Mm-hmm. I've had oh, a couple dozen of those over the years for uh, varying lengths of time. And uh, so those are some of my favorites. Heck, I, I sent a picture to Eric. I was uh, just digging through a cage and. I found a shed tooth from one of the last Palmaros that I had. And it, you know, covers the entire width of my finger. And it's like, I, you know, texted him a picture and said, well, that's how they, you know, they'll bite through a leather work glove. Like, not yeah, you know, it's still, crazy. Jake has a little uh, one and he's like, he's like, man, that thing just will make me bleed. And it's tiny. Like, it's not even a big one. It's, it's still, you know, it's like a yearling. I oh, think. Yeah, and he's like, dude, the teeth on this thing is freaking insane. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, but, you know, so, as I say, I, I love scrub pythons. And that was probably the thing I was most excited to see there. And uh, we found two live ones and two two that had been uh, hit. But uh, it really made it sweeter that both, in both of those instances, we saw the one that had been hit and then came upon the live one. And mm-hmm. it makes it that much sweeter after the, you know, <laughs> how dark you can feel you know we were at Tully kind of going up and down we were there for hours and hours going up and down we come down and it was just cane toads all over the place and just putting me in a dark place yeah that's gotta be depressing and then we see yeah totally and then we see a like a five and a half or six foot scrub that had just been annihilated um and there is a power station there and no doubt one of those dudes that hit it and it's really frustrating um, but, uh, then, you know, we go a couple hundred meters further and there's a live one the same size and that was, you know, that was awesome. And then on our last kind of full night going, when we went, had gone up to Daintree and came down to Cairns, same sort of situation. We've been messing around up in Daintree thinking that was the spot. And then we get down, uh, closer towards Moston and there was one hit there and both those, it, it the level of frustration of saying I was on this road an hour ago at the I'm this at was at this spot an hour yeah. ago and that snake was not on the road and was not hit and I've only seen like two cars in the mm-hmm. interim and yet the thing you know but so then to uh, with that one from Mossman then uh, the the weird bit that one was another five and a half six footer and it looked perfect I mean it was stone dead but it, it looked perfect. Um, so it must have just barely caught the head or something. I don't know. Um, but then, you know, driving 45 minutes or an hour later, doing some positivist reptile talk, saying, hey, man, just because, uh, you know, pet tubers put little hats on bearded dragons and things, it doesn't make them <laughs> any less cool. They, intrinsically, they're actually cool animals. Yeah. We kind of underrate stuff in the hobby because of, uh, you know, we, we don't think of it as of what it is. We think of it how people perceive it. Well, I th- uh, yeah, I mean, I think about that even with native species like out herping. You know, me and Jake will go out, and like the other night, we found a, we went road cruising just on a whim, and uh, didn't find anything except a red-bellied water snake. And to him, he's all about Nerodia. I'm not, I don't really get it. I'm not into him. 
But it's I like, you, man, that's why I don't understand him bailing on this show. I love Nerodia, man. I had a big Diamondback water snake as a kid, and now I've got all these West Indian bows and things. I love Nerodia. I need to get some of those. Maybe I can uh, talk him into, uh, I don't know what the laws are on your stuff, but uh, we have we none. Figure out a locality project or something. South Carolina is uh, a freaking free for all. It's great. So, and there's bandits yeah, everywhere. I, I don't here. know why he bailed on this show. <laughs> Maybe he's like, ah, yeah, I'm he's sick. He's not. He's been. He's been dealing with something all week, and he thought he would be. Uh, he thought it'd be good to go. A but, likely story. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I don't know. Like I, we find that red-bellied water snake, or if I'm out at my parents' house, you know, there's usually a big ass yellow rat in the chicken pen trying to get eggs or something like that, and. I'm sure there's plenty of people that are kind of like me and they're like, oh, you know, another one of these fucking things. Like, whatever. <clears throat> another yellow rat. Oh, yeah, cool. I'll pull it out again tomorrow. <laughs> but, there, man, you know there's a kid probably somewhere in, like, Bulgaria or something that would kill to see a yellow rat or even, like, a corn snake out in the wild. And so I try to hey, kind of... Man, even, even me, I was checking out uh, both your guys' Facebook pages or Instagrams, you know, and... Uh... Man, he posted up that one corn snake was insane. Mm-hmm. Like uh, all this, uh, you know. So it doesn't even take a Bulgarian kid, man. I'd I'd be stoked to see any of that stuff, you know. In it's the just... same way, you know, one of those big pole snakes. Maybe you'd be excited. Yeah. To see that, well, know, like seeing people kid. pulling carpet pythons out of their bathroom in Australia. It's like, man, that would be so cool <laughs> to pull carpet pythons out of my toilet. But then. You know, over there, it's the same thing like it is for me when I see a black racer. I'm like, I'm not even gonna bother chasing that damn thing. Like those things suck. Whatever. Like it's it's you know it, when you look at it kind of from the perspective of these are exotic to other people outside of this country, then it kind of gives me a more of an appreciation for them. You know, like copperheads and stuff, especially like down here, copperheads are nothing spectacular. But when I see one, I'm like, man, there's these things are cool, and there's you know there's people all over the world that would probably kill to see a copperhead sitting on a road here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, totally. I mean, and they intrinsically they're cool, you know. Just because we yeah, get tired yeah. of stuff or whatever, or you know, accustomed to it or whatever, doesn't. I mean, heck, even a leopard gecko, you know, certainly a bearded dragon. You know, you're in Australia and you see a bearded dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm no different than you. You know, I see them. You know, seen tens of thousands of them at shows and things. I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm, I'm weird. I'll look at anything or whatever. But like. um you know, I would say that, oh, you just pass it by. If you see that doing its own thing, as this wild creature that it is, it's adapted to do that, you're going to be excited, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, well, so, it's got to be interesting to see us, you know, a scrub in Australia, knowing you're never yeah. going to see one anywhere else but there. Like, you're not going to go back home and go to a show and see that same thing sitting on a table, you know, next month. Like if you oh, want to totally. see that, yeah, you I mean, gotta go and there you, and you find it. You wouldn't see that that one or even even that Brisbane carpet yeah, stuff it's yeah. where it's just like I see. You know, we have theoretically Brisbane carpets. They don't look like that thing. Any, I'm not saying those aren't Brisbane carpets. I'm just saying, man, like the head pattern, the color, that thing was awesome. I mm-hmm. don't know if they all look like that or we just happened to see a ten out of ten on the one that we saw, but like, I, it's is so much sweeter knowing now I I know literally you know the the stump that that thing was you know on or under mm-hmm. um, wasn't Burke saying the and, same thing about jungles he's like if y'all saw the jungles in the wild you'd be really disappointed 
because they well, looked nothing I, like I, the I don't ones know. that we have I here. would say one of them was kind of like that. Uh, so we saw it too. And I was just happy about that because I uh, – so we'd gone up to Jalot and I'd had us out uh, to the west of there trying to see some of those pygmy banded pythons. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole thing was on fire. And I was like, let's turn around now, man, and we'll we'll get to uh, Jalot because I had a really good feeling about where we might see – you know, what what is Jalot and Jungle – where that was coming from. Um, and sure enough, man, essentially instantly, you know, it, it had just turned dark right on, you know, right off the road that I thought we should be on. And like, I don't know whether they had seen it before I said something or not, because to me it was just like, Wah! you know, there it is. And the thing looked like, sort of it had the base color of like an IJ, you know, something like that. Oh, yeah. And, the striping of like an IJ, that mm-hmm. sort of a classic stripe down the back with the, at the same time having the bands on the side. Um, but it had the, the yellow was like the color of a jungle jack. I mean, it was insane. Jeez. It was like if you had mixed, if you had like a IJ jungle jack, that, you know, that, that had that IJ stripe, that's sort of what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, well, that doesn't look like a gelatin jungle. Uh, <laughs> but then the second one that we saw, um, that I saw it in a ditch as we drove by, uh, and they were both like, ah, how'd you even see that thing? And I was like, I don't know. I was looking out the window. <laughs> <laughs> um, you I think drove by it and it was a, sitting a bigger... there. I just happened to be looking no, in that it, general direction. Right? You know, it, it caused a, a bigger stir when so we were driving. Uh, well, I'll finish that story. So the second gelatin that we saw, um, like Eric said, it, you know, very uh, kind of muddy, um, still a beautiful, beautiful snake, um, but much different than the one we saw a couple hundred meters in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you would never, if I showed you the two next to each other, you, you wouldn't say, oh, that's anywhere near each other or even possibly the same thing. Um, and they could literally run into each other in a night. Um, but uh, that one did have, what was cool is looking at the pictures later, it has sort of, the lineage a lot that Paul Harris have has has kind of that dual striping. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the like, especially I think one that he's really happy with has this dual striping bit. And that second shot we saw had that same feature. Uh, and I was like, well, that's really cool because that, uh, you know, speaking of locality and things, of saying like, okay, well, maybe, uh, you know, certainly it didn't didn't hurt how I feel about those to see one. Uh, that had sort of a unique feature mm-hmm. that is you know, defining in the stuff Paul has, and then to see a wild one that has the same thing um, was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, so the other thing I was going to say when we were coming back from Chiligo, uh, which is out a little further west in Queensland, in a little bit more of an outback feel, mm-hmm. and the weather had turned nasty with some hail, and certainly if it was Colorado, we were you'd get a tornado. The, the temp dropped. 20 degrees in an hour. Oh, wow. Um, just sort of crazy. That's when we got blown off the road by the uh, tractor trailer. It pushed us like a foot, <laughs> um, foot to the left. Um, but uh, as it went by, um, so then we're driving back, and well, it wound up, uh, long story short, is we're driving, and but we're on this, you know, not not busy road, but we're in the middle of nowhere, and it's certainly it's it's a, a high speed freeway mm-hmm. and it's sort of a blind curve. And I I asked those guys, I'm like, hey, if you want to go back, I, I 
like 95% that I just saw a snake. <laughs> um, they're both like, what do you mean? You know, you got to say something sooner. And I'm like, well, first of all, when you, uh, what I, one thing I've learned going forward in Australia with road cruising is I want to have a, uh, set up a, a code word that means safely come to a stop. I may have seen a snake as opposed to <laughs> nothing or snake, which, you know, could involve right. all of us going through the windshield, yep. you know, um, for what it winds up being like a rock, you know, that sort of, I, I think I've learned my lesson and I, there needs to be a pre-established phrase that says, okay, <laughs> safely stop. Don't freak out. That sort of thing. Um, but, uh, we then go back and it, it was a couple hundred meters back. It wound up being a shed skin. Uh, and they're, they're both like, how'd you even see that? And I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. We're going, we're going Eagle eyes. 75 miles an hour or whatever. Um, you know, and just the, the form or the shape or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, I've seen a snake or two and <laughs> I think that's one, uh, but it wound up being a shed. So, um, do you know what anyway, it was? Was it like yeah. a carpet or was it something else? It was not a carpet. Um, it's probably something that was uh, a pretty uniform color. Mm-hmm. Like a brown snake or something? Yeah, I mean, something, you know, I don't, I'm not particularly a venomous guy and don't, you know, wouldn't even dare to speculate, but it's sort of that, that body form, mm-hmm. and, and certainly there was not pattern and stuff on it. Uh, it's certainly not a heavy pattern. Gotcha. And you guys had someone local with you, I'm assuming. Obviously, you're not just driving around a foreign country by yourself. I don't, I don't know. What do you mean, man? That's not how I run run a show. <laughs> no, I, I just looked, uh, spent a lot of time on Google Earth. I did talk to uh, uh, a local dude, well, Australian guy, who gave me some insight into general places to go. I talked to buddies of mine that had gone to uh, Australia before. Justin, I talked to Justin quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another guy and said, hey, where'd you go? Um, then I just looked at Google Earth, man, and said, hey, here's where we're going. No, we didn't have any, we did not have, when we were in Brisbane, we met up with Scott. He uh, uh, took us out, mm-hmm. and then we went out later that night to the same place. Um, it was just sort of a convenient place relative to where we were staying, which was close by the airport. You know, I didn't want to uh, risk missing a flight, you know. It's, yeah. it's one thing if the flight doesn't happen on them, but I couldn't be buying a, you know, <laughs> buying a today ticket because mm-hmm. I managed to screw up being at the airport or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, when we were up in Cairns, we were uh, just three of us, man. Cool. Very nice. Well, we're... I... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and same deal, Keith is coming with us uh, this time. So it'll be Keith and Keith and theoretically Omac. We'll see if he... Uh, See if he makes it makes it happen. But We're gonna make it happen one day. Me and Jake want to get out there real bad. <clears throat> totally, man. You you won't regret it. And it's really nowhere near as uh, one thing that I've seen. You know, my own experience of it, and I, I wasn't totally shocked with this from uh, my own travel experience generally, is that uh, you have folks who having it be sort of a struggle or be a pain, you know, or whatever is half the fun. Um, that's not necessarily my approach, but, uh, mm-hmm. it can be, I can deal with it, but I'm, it doesn't have to be a, a struggle to have been, you know, it's more about finding snakes than it is being able to say it was, it was miserable or whatever. Um, 
it's nowhere near as expensive or difficult as uh, maybe people would suggest because maybe they they like it being <laughs> they like it being tough. Do you ever watch that movie Wolf Creek? Long time ago, <laughs> my uh, my buddy Tom, his, he and his wife liked uh, horror movies, so um, I think I had seen it at their spot. I'm gonna make Jake watch it before we go, whenever we do, and be like, "Dude, <laughs> this is what we this is what we're in for." Yeah, well, you know that I know you talked about Hostel before when that too, staying yeah. at a Hostel or something. No, thank you. <laughs> I've never I've never left the country, man. I don't the thought of being at the mercy of like complete strangers when in another country where you might as well be on the moon is kind of intimidating. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean it's it's not that bad and most people are okay. You know, I, I wouldn't dissuade you from that. To me, the like a centrally located Airbnb, especially at the rate that those go for, you're not talking much more than sort of a hostile situation. Mm-hmm. Um and that to me is uh, the the more rural you are, the harder that gets. But we stayed in one that was sort of definitely outskirts of Cannes, and uh, maybe twenty minutes out of town, something like that. It was like sixty bucks a night, and you could it would easily sleep four people. You're talking fifteen bucks a night for a bed, a shower, mm-hmm. your own kitchen. I mean, we did we didn't do a ton of making food or anything, but like, what's that's essentially nothing. Relative to oh, or we could you know have some crazy car or camping situation or whatever. And, <laughs> Be like Casey know, oh, wow, and run out of water. Yeah, <laughs> like that's nothing. Did you listen to that episode with Casey when he was talking about how they, when they were out there they they like basically yeah. got lost and ran out of water? Here's the thing, I've because I've, <laughs> we thought about the, my one piece of advice, I suppose, when you go to Australia would be I would I would not try and I know there's different approaches people have, but for me, I would pick an area and focus on it and then just say, hey, I'm going to have to come back in six months or a year or two years, whatever it is mm-hmm. on your schedule. But just say, I'm going to pick an area and I'm going to really do that. Instead of saying, I'm either driving, you know, doing – I know Justin, he's all about these crazy drives. And I, I just don't understand it because what it what it means is you can see an awesome spot and then it's like, well, we got to keep moving, you know? Yeah. Like, but it's, tonight could just be the bad night. I'm sure you guys have spots in South Carolina where it's mm. like, there's nothing here tonight, but I know tomorrow there would be something here if we yep. could be here. But if I've got to be in Lara or whatever the next day, I, I can't be here, and I'm just running the same, you know. That like, was, to me, it feels like you would really increase your odds. That was saying, us Wednesday. Now we're going to stay in this two-hour, three-hour radius. Yeah. Because Jacob swore up and down that this road that he goes on was going to be jam-packed with snakes. Like, they're going to be, like, every 10 feet. Like, he's like, dude, we're going to find them. We're going to find all kinds of stuff. I'll bet you, (laughs) I'll bet you, like, a dollar we're going to find all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, man, whatever. And so we went out there. And then within five minutes, we found that water snake. And he's like, look at that, man. Five minutes, we find a snake. Like, look at that. And then we spent the next hour and a half finding nothing right but so. that next night maybe you'd find you know maybe you'd oh yeah. Like what, yeah I'm sure it was crawling know? and the other bit of it too my other piece of advice so I, I guess my advice would be to, to find an Airbnb that's convenient to that like 
three-hour radius or whatever. Maybe it's even two or three different places. You mm-hmm. can stay a couple nights each place or whatever. Um, and you can hop around a little bit, but you, you're still kind of working from a base. The other thing, I, you know, I know Eric's always talking about this, and I'm a believer too, especially with wild herbs, is the moon, man. Like, I couldn't believe Justin went to Australia over the super moon. Like, that's insane. You know, it's like full super moon. And he, you know, comes up on him in the desert. It's just like, come on, man. Like, work against, you know, work to the new moon. Not Like, so we certainly did that with our trip. We're doing that in October. I mean, you know, you might as well try and, you know, set yourself up the best you can. You're not in control of the situation. So yeah. just try and increase Make your odds. Make the most you know, of it, right. You know, I, feel uh, I, don't, I only kid Justin because he does such, man, he's gone over there more than any of the rest mm-hmm. of us. And I love his, uh, love the pages that he's put up on his website. That, you know, he said he looks at him more than anyone. Well, I might be pushing him on it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that and all the shows, when he comes on, chats with Eric and Owen about it and all that stuff. I only kid him because it's so, uh, so jealous and appreciative of what he's done. He has done a lot. I I really enjoyed having him on and talking to him a couple of weeks ago. He's a really cool yeah, guy. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I definitely heard his show. With, I heard it when you guys first put it out, and then I listened to it again uh, when I was on the plane flight and stuff because I was like, oh, I know this is solid. Uh, this will be solid to listen to. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it's fantastic, and I it's one of those things. Hearing him talk about it reminds me of the you know uh, what it was like on on our trip. I know Nick and Chris had gone to Cannes before mm-hmm. and the show they did with Eric and Owen talking about it was fantastic and it made me uh, you know especially in light of going to a lot of those same places it was awesome to listen to again and again and again <laughs> yeah man alright well we're just under two hours where can uh, where can people find you uh, I guess most interestingly is the Instagram, High Plains Herb. I, I'm with you. Instagram's the the cool spot. You don't get nearly as much of that. Yeah, you know, it, you, it, it, you get so much less bullshit on Instagram. It's great. Yeah, you know, so, and I, maybe part of it too is uh, you're genuinely following people that you're super intro, yep. you know, interested in what they have to say about you're either following them or you're not. On there as opposed to just your buddies, you know, might yeah. be. Yeah. You might know them a thousand different ways or whatever. Um, so yeah, high plane herp on there. I had made it my goal to uh, put up a picture a day from the herp history stuff. You know, hashtag herp history, which is just just means that's a picture of mine from you know back in the day. Yeah, that could be anywhere in the last twenty twenty five years. Um, so hopefully people like that. I know I I like looking at it myself. You know, sort of like. Instead of looking at it on my phone, I can have it on here and mm-hmm. can look at it too. Um, so hopefully, uh, people dig that or think it's cool. They're not just like, "Hey, what's this? What's this guy all about?" Uh, so that's probably the easiest way uh, or most interesting. I think. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you doing this. It's a bummer Jake couldn't join us, but I'm sure he's he's getting his beauty sleep. Yeah, right. he'll be ready. Yeah, he'll be ready next kids, week. You know? Yeah. I'm getting too old for all that partying and drinking and mess. <clears throat> you know. Well, yeah, and you always talk about the cigars. You got to make it up to Northeast Carpet Fest. I've heard, I've heard your, 
your dilemma with it, you know, in terms of work and all that. But if mm-hmm. you can make it happen, and uh, you want to bring a cigar, I certainly would smoke one. So I know uh, you're in. Yeah, I want to, that. man. I would certainly be game. I need to. Uh, I need to talk to bring it up to my boss again because there's a very good chance he kind of forgot about whatever he had planned that weekend and maybe i can get him to to give it to me and then when the time comes i'll be like look dude you told me i could take it off i already made all these plans you can't go back now you can't renege on that uh on what you what you gave me so we'll see i really want to well i mean worth a shot i'll certainly be there i've been there the last couple years it's always fun being at eric's spot and got a lot of cool stuff to, to check out and play with hell yeah all right, man. Well, have a good night. I appreciate you coming on again. All right, you too, man. Talk to you later. Don't worry.